Chapter Nineteen and Twenty of the Grand Babylon Hotel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Grand Babylon Hotel by Arnold Bennett. Chapter Nineteen. Royalty at the Grand Babylon. The royal apartments at the Grand Babylon are famous in the world of hotels and indeed elsewhere as being in their own way unsurpassed. Some of the palaces of Germany and in particular those of the mad Ludwig of Bavaria, may possess rooms and saloons which outshine them in gorgeous luxury and the mere wild fairy-like extravagance of wealth, but there is nothing, anywhere, even on 8th Avenue, New York, which can fairly be called more complete, more perfect, more enticing, or, not least important, more comfortable. The suite consists of six chambers, the ante-room, the saloon or audience chamber, the dining-room, the yellow drawing-room, where royalty receives its friends, the library, and the state bedroom, to the last of which we have already been introduced. The most important and most impressive of these is, of course, the audience chamber, an apartment fifty feet long by forty feet broad, with a superb outlook over the Thames, the shot tower, and the higher signals of the southwestern railway. The decoration of this room is mainly in the German taste, since four out of every six of its royal occupants are of Teutonic blood but its chief glory is its French ceiling, a masterpiece by Fragonard, taken bodily from a certain famous palace on the Loire. The walls are of panelled oak, with an eight-foot dado of arak cloth imitated from unique continental examples. The carpet, woven in one piece, is an antique specimen of the finest Turkish work, and it was obtained, a bargain, by Felix Babylon from an impecunious Romanian prince. The silver candelabra, now fitted with electric light, came from the Rhine, and each had a separate history. The royal chair, it is not adequate to call it a throne, though it amounts to a throne, was looted by Napoleon from an Austrian city, and bought by Felix Babylon at the sale of a French collector. At each corner of the room stands a gigantic, grotesque vase of German faience of the sixteenth century. These were presented to Felix Babylon by William I of Germany, upon the conclusion of his first incognito visit to London in connection with the French trouble of 1875. There is only one picture in the audience chamber. It is a portrait of the luckless but noble Dom Pedro, Emperor of the Brazils. Given to Felix Babylon by Dom Pedro himself, it hangs there solitary and sublime as a reminder to kings and princes that empires may pass away and greatness fall. A certain prince who was occupying the suite during the jubilee of 1887, when the Grand Babylon had seven persons of royal blood under its roof, sent a curt message to Felix that the portrait must be removed. Felix respectfully declined to remove it, and the prince left for another hotel, where he was robbed of two thousand pounds worth of jewellery. The royal audience chamber of the Grand Babylon, if people only knew it, is one of the sights of London, but it is never shown and if you ask the hotel servants about its wonders, they will tell you only foolish facts concerning it, as that the turkey carpet costs fifty pounds to clean, and that one of the great vases is cracked across the pedestal, owing to the rough treatment accorded to it during a riotous game of blindman's buff, played one night by four young princesses, a Balkan king, and his aide-de-camp. In one of the window recesses of this magnificent apartment, on a certain afternoon in late July, stood Prince Aribert of Posen, he was faultlessly dressed in the conventional frock-coat of English civilization, with a gardenia in his buttonhole, and the indispensable crease down the front of the trousers. He seemed to be fairly amused, and also to expect someone, 
for at frequent intervals he looked rapidly over his shoulder in the direction of the door behind the royal chair. At last a little, wizened, stooping old man, with a distinctly German cast of countenance, appeared through the door, and laid some papers on a small table by the side of the chair. "'Ah, Hans, my old friend,' said Aribert, approaching the old man. "'I must have a little talk with you about one or two matters. How do you find His Royal Highness?' The old man saluted, military fashion. "'Not very well, Your Highness,' he answered. "'I have been valet to Your Highness's nephew since his majority, and I was valet to his royal father before him, but I never saw—' He stopped, and threw up his wrinkled hands deprecatingly. "'You never saw what?' Aribert smiled affectionately on the old fellow. You could perceive that these two, so sharply differentiated in rank, had been intimate in the past, and would be intimate again.' "'Do you know, my prince,' said the old man, "'that we are to receive the financier, Samson Levi, is that his name, in the audience chamber? Surely, if I may humbly suggest, the library would have been good enough for a financier.' "'One would have thought so,' agreed Prince Aribert. "'But perhaps your master has a special reason. Tell me,' he went on, changing the subject quickly, "'how came it that you left the prince, my nephew, at Ostend, and returned to Posen?' His orders, Prince, and old Hans, who had had a wide experience of royal whims and knew half the secrets of the courts of Europe, gave Aribert a look which might have meant anything. He sent me back on an, an errand, Your Highness. And you were to rejoin him here? Just so, Highness, and I did rejoin him here, although, to tell the truth, I had begun to fear that I might never see my master again. The Prince has been very ill in Ostend, Hans. "'So I have gathered,' Hans responded, dryly, slowly rubbing his hands together. "'And His Highness is not yet perfectly recovered.' "'Not yet. We despaired of his life, Hans, at one time, but thanks to an excellent constitution he came safely through the ordeal. "'We must take care of him, Your Highness.' "'Yes, indeed,' said Aribert solemnly. "'His life is very precious to Posen.' At that moment Eugen, hereditary prince of Posen, entered the audience chamber. He was pale and languid, and his uniform seemed to be a trouble to him. His hair had been slightly ruffled, and there was a look of uneasiness, almost of alarmed unrest, in his fine dark eyes. He was like a man who was afraid to look behind him, lest he should see something there which ought not to be there. But at the same time, here beyond doubt was royalty. Nothing could have been more striking than the contrast between Eugen, a sick man in the shabby house at Ostend, and this Prince Eugen, in the royal apartments of the Grand Babylon Hotel, surrounded by the luxury and pomp which modern civilization can offer to those born in high places. All the desperate episode of Ostend was now hidden, passed over. It was supposed never to have occurred. It existed only like a secret shame in the hearts of those who had witnessed it. Prince Eugen had recovered, at any rate he was convalescent, and he had been removed to London, where he took up again the dropped thread of his princely life. The lady with the red hat, the incorruptible and savage Miss Spencer, the unscrupulous and brilliant Jules, the dark, damp cellar, the horrible little bedroom, these things were over. Thanks to Prince Aribert and the Rexalls, he had emerged from them in safety. He was able to resume his public and official career. The Emperor had been informed of his safe arrival in London after an unavoidable delay in Ostend, his name once more figured in the court chronicle of the newspapers. In short, everything was smothered over. Only, only Jules, Rocco, and Miss Spencer were still at large, and the body of Reginald Dimmock, 
lay buried in the domestic mausoleum of the palace at Posen, and Prince Eugen had still to interview Mr. Sampson Levi. That various matters lay heavy on the mind of Prince Eugen was beyond question. He seemed to have withdrawn within himself. Despite the extraordinary experiences through which he had recently passed, events which called aloud for explanations and confidence between the nephew and the uncle, he would say scarcely a word to Prince Aribert. Any allusion, however direct, to the days at Ostend was ignored by him with more or less ingenuity, and Prince Aribert was really no nearer a full solution of the mystery of Jules' plot than he had been on the night when he and Rexall visited the gaming-tables at Ostend. Eugen was well aware that he had been kidnapped through the agency of the woman in the red hat, but, doubtless ashamed at having been her dupe, he would not proceed in any way with the clearing up of the matter. "'You will receive in this room, Eugen?' Aribert questioned him. "'Yes,' was the answer, given pettishly. "'Why not? Even if I have no proper retinue here, surely that is no reason why I should not hold audience in a proper manner. Hans, you can go.' The old valet promptly disappeared. "'Aribert,' the hereditary prince continued, when they were alone in the chamber, "'you think I'm mad.' "'My dear Eugen,' said Prince Aribert, startled in spite of himself, "'don't be absurd.' "'I say, you think I'm mad. You think that that attack of brain fever has left its permanent mark on me. Well, perhaps I am mad. Who can tell? God knows that I have been through enough lately to drive me mad.' Aribert made no reply. As a matter of strict fact, the thought had crossed his mind that Eugen's brain had not yet recovered its normal tone and activity. This speech of his nephew's, however, had the effect of immediately restoring his belief in the latter's entire sanity— he felt convinced that if only he could regain his nephew's confidence, the old brotherly confidence which had existed between them since the years when they played together as boys, all might yet be well. But at present there appeared to be no sign that Eugen meant to give his confidence to anyone. The young prince had come up out of the valley of the shadow of death, but some of the valley's shadow had clung to him, and it seemed he was unable to dissipate it. "'By the way,' said Eugen, suddenly, I must reward these Rexels, I suppose. I am indeed grateful to them. If I gave the girl a bracelet and the father a thousand guineas, how would that meet the case? My dear Eugen, exclaimed Aribert aghast, a thousand guineas? Do you know that Theodore Rexel could buy up all Posen from end to end without making himself a pauper? A thousand guineas? You might as well offer him sixpence. Then what must I offer? "'Nothing, except your thanks. Anything else would be an insult. These are no ordinary hotel people.' "'Can't I give the little girl a bracelet?' Prince Eugen gave a sinister laugh. Aribert looked at him steadily. "'No,' he said. "'Why did you kiss her that night?' asked Prince Eugen carelessly. "'Kiss whom?' said Aribert, blushing and angry, despite his most determined efforts to keep calm and unconcerned. "'The Rexel girl.' "'When do you mean?' "'I mean,' said Prince Eugen, "'that night in Ostend when I was ill. "'You thought I was in a delirium. "'Perhaps I was. "'But somehow I remember that with extraordinary distinctness. "'I remember raising my head for a fraction of an instant, "'and just in that fraction of an instant you kissed her. "'Oh, Uncle Aribert!' "'Listen, Eugen, for God's sake. "'I love Nella Rexel. "'I shall marry her.' "'Hugh!' There was a long pause, and then Eugen laughed. "'Ah!' he said. "'They all talked like that to start with. 
I have talked like that myself, dear uncle. It sounds nice, and it means nothing. In this case, it means everything, Eugen, said Aribert quietly. Some accent of determination in the latter's tone made Eugen rather more serious. You can't marry her, he said. The Emperor won't permit a morganatic marriage. The Emperor has nothing to do with the affair. I shall renounce my rights. I shall become a plain citizen. In which case you will have no fortune to speak of. But my wife will have a fortune. Knowing the sacrifices which I shall have made in order to marry her, she will not hesitate to place that fortune in my hands for our mutual use, said Aribert stiffly. You will decidedly be rich, mused Eugen, as his ideas dwelt on Theodore Rexall's reputed wealth. But have you thought of this? he asked, and his mild eyes glowed again in a sort of madness. Have you thought that I am unmarried, and might die at any moment, and then the throne will descend to you? To you, Aribert. The throne will never descend to me, Eugen, said Aribert softly, for you will live. You are thoroughly convalescent. You have nothing to fear. It is the next seven days that I fear, said Eugen. The next seven days? Why? I do not know, but I fear them. If I can survive them... Mr. Samson Levi, sire, Hans announced in a loud tone. Chapter 20 Mr. Samson Levi bids Prince Eugen good morning. Prince Eugen started. I will see him, he said, with a gesture to Hans, as if to indicate that Mr. Samson Levi might enter at once. I beg one moment first, said Aribert, laying a hand gently on his nephew's arm, and giving old Hans a glance which had the effect of precipitating that admirably trained servant through the doorway. What is it? asked Prince Eugen crossly. Why this sudden seriousness? Don't forget that I have an appointment with Mrs. Sampson Levi, and must not keep him waiting. Someone said that punctuality is the politeness of princes. Eugen, said Aribert, I wish you to be as serious as I am. Why cannot we have faith in each other? I want to help you. I have helped you. You are my titular sovereign, but, on the other hand, I have the honour to be your uncle. I have the honour to be the same age as you and to have been your companion from youth up. Give me your confidence. I thought you had given it me years ago, but I have lately discovered that you had your secrets even then. And now, since your illness, you are still more secretive. "'What do you mean, Aribert?' said Eugen, in a tone which might have been either inimical or friendly. "'What do you want to say?' "'Well, in the first place, I want to say that you will not succeed with the estimable Mr. Samson Levi.' "'Shall I not?' said Eugen lightly. How do you know what my business is with him? Suffice it to say that I know. You will never get that million pounds out of him. Prince Eugen gasped, and then swallowed his excitement. Who has been talking? What million? His eyes wandered uneasily round the room. Ah, he said, pretending to laugh. I see how it is. I have been chattering in my delirium. You mustn't take any notice of that, Aribert. When one has a fever, one's ideas become grotesque and fanciful. "'You never talked in your delirium,' Aribert replied. "'At least not about yourself. I knew about this projected loan before I saw you in Ostend.' "'Who told you?' demanded Eugen fiercely. "'Then you admit that you are trying to raise a loan?' "'I admit nothing. Who told you?' "'Theodore Rexall, the millionaire. 
These rich men have no secrets from each other. They form a coterie, closer than any coterie of ours, Eugen, and far more powerful. They talk, and in talking they rule the world, these millionaires. They are the real monarchs. Curse them, said Eugen. Yes, perhaps so. But let me return to your case. Imagine my shame, my disgust, when I found that Rexel could tell me more about your affairs than I knew myself. Happily, he is a good fellow, one can trust him. Otherwise, I should have been tempted to do something desperate when I discovered that all your private history was in his hands. Eugen, let us come to the point. Why do you want that million? Is it actually true that you are so deeply in debt? I have no desire to improve the occasion. I merely ask. And what if I do owe a million? said Prince Eugen, with assumed valour. Oh, nothing, my dear Eugen, nothing. Only it is rather a large sum to have scattered in ten years, is it not? How did you manage it? Don't ask, Aribert. I've been a fool. But I swear to you that the woman whom you call the lady in the red hat is the last of my follies. I am about to take a wife and become a respectable prince. Then the engagement with Princess Anna is an accomplished fact. Practically so. As soon as I have settled with Levi, all will be smooth. Aribert, I wouldn't lose Anna for the imperial throne. She is a good and pure woman, and I love her as a man might love an angel. And yet you would deceive her as to your deaths, Eugen. Not her, but her absurd parents, and perhaps the emperor. They have heard rumours, and I must set those rumours at rest by presenting to them a clean sheet. I am glad you have been frank with me, Eugen, said Prince Aribert, but I will be plain with you. You will never marry the Princess Anna. And why? said Eugen, supercilious again. Because her parents will not permit it. Because you will not be able to present a clean sheet to them. Because this Samson Levi will never lend you a million. Explain yourself. I propose to do so. You were kidnapped. It is a horrid word, but we must use it. In Ostend. True. Do you know why? I suppose because that vile old red-headed woman and her accomplices wanted to get some money out of me. Fortunately, thanks to you, they didn't. Not at all, said Aribert. They wanted no money from you. They knew well enough that you had no money. They knew you were the naughty schoolboy among European princes, with no sense of responsibility or of duty towards your kingdom. Shall I tell you why they kidnapped you? When you have done abusing me, my dear uncle, they kidnapped you merely to keep you out of England for a few days, merely to compel you to fail in your appointment with Samson Levi, and it appears to me that they succeeded. Assuming that you don't obtain the money from Levi, is there another financier in all Europe from whom you can get it, on such strange security as you have to offer? Possibly there's not, said Prince Eugen calmly. But, you see, I shall get it from Samson Levi. Levi promised it, and I know from other sources that he is a man of his word. He said that the money, subject to certain formalities, would be available till... Till? Till the end of June. And it is now the end of July. Well, what is a month? He is only too glad to lend the money. He will get excellent interest. How on earth have you got into your sage-old head this notion of a plot against me? The idea is ridiculous. A plot against me? What for? Have you ever thought of Bosnia? asked Aribert coldly. What of Bosnia? I need not tell you that the king of Bosnia is naturally under obligations to Austria, 
to whom he owes his crown. Austria is anxious for him to make a good, influential marriage. Well, let him. He is going to. He is going to marry the Princess Anna. Not while I live. He made overtures there a year ago, and was rebuffed. Yes, but he will make overtures again, and this time he will not be rebuffed. Oh, Eugen, can't you see that this plot against you is being engineered by some persons who know all about your affairs, and whose desire is to prevent your marriage with Princess Anna? Only one man in Europe can have any motive for wishing to prevent your marriage with Princess Anna, and that is the man who means to marry her himself. Eugen went very pale. Then, Herbert, do you mean to convey to me that my detention in Ostend was contrived by the agents of the King of Bosnia? I do. With a view to stopping my negotiations with Samson Levi, and so putting an end to the possibility of my marriage with Anna? Herbert nodded. You are a good friend to me, Herbert. You mean well, but you are mistaken. You have been worrying about nothing. Have you forgotten about Reginald Dimmock? I remember you said that he had died. I said nothing of the sort. I said that he had been assassinated. That was part of it, my poor Eugen. Pooh, said Eugen. I don't believe he was assassinated. And as for Samson Levi, I will bet you a thousand marks that he and I come to terms this morning, and that the million is in my hands before I leave London. Herbert shook his head. You seem to be pretty sure of Mr. Levi's character. Have you had much to do with him before? Well, Eugen hesitated a second. A little. What young man in my position hasn't had something to do with Mr. Sampson Levi at one time or another? I haven't, said Herbert. Hugh, you are a fossil. He rang a silver bell. Hans, I will receive Mr. Sampson Levi whereupon Herbert discreetly departed, and Prince Eugen sat down in the great velvet chair, and began to look at the papers which Hans had previously placed upon the table. "'Good morning, Your Royal Highness,' said Samson Levi, bowing as he entered. "'I trust Your Royal Highness is well.' "'Moderately, thanks,' returned the Prince. In spite of the fact that he had had as much to do with people of royal blood as any plain man in Europe, Samson Levi had never yet learned how to be at ease with these exalted individuals during the first few minutes of an interview. Afterwards he resumed command of himself and his faculties, but at the beginning he was invariably flustered, scarlet of face, and inclined to perspiration. "'We will proceed to business at once,' said Prince Eugen. "'Will you take a seat, Mr. Levi?' "'I thank your Royal Highness.' "'Now as to that loan, which we had already practically arranged,' A million, I think it was, said the prince airily. A million, Levi acquiesced, toying with his enormous watch-chain. Everything is now in order. Here are the papers, and I should like to finish the matter up at once. Exactly, your highness, but... But what? You months ago expressed the warmest satisfaction at the security, though I am quite prepared to admit that the security is of rather an unusual nature. You also agreed to the rate of interest. It is not everyone, Mr. Levi, who can lend out a million at five and a half per cent. And in ten years the whole amount will be paid back. I, um, I believe I informed you that the fortune of Princess Anna, who is about to accept my hand, will ultimately amount to something like fifty millions of marks, 
which is over two million pounds in your English money. Prince Eugen stopped. He had no fancy for talking in this confidential manner to financiers, but he felt that circumstances demanded it. "'You see, it's like this, your royal highness,' began Mr. Sampson Levi, in his homely English idiom. "'It's like this. I said I could keep that bit of money available till the end of June, and you were to give me an interview here before that date. Not having heard from your highness, and not knowing your highness's address, though my German agents made every inquiry, I concluded that you'd made other arrangements, money being so cheap these last few months.' "'I was unfortunately detained at Ostend,' said Prince Eugen, with as much haughtiness as he could assume. "'By—by by important business. I have made no other arrangements, and I shall have need of the million. If you will be so good as to pay it to my London bankers—' "'I am very sorry,' said Mr. Sampson Levi, with a tremendous and dazzling air of politeness, which surprised even himself. "'But my syndicate has now lent the money elsewhere.' It is in South America. I don't mind telling your highness that we've lent it to the Chilean government. Hang the Chilean government, Mr. Levi, exclaimed the prince, and he went white. I must have that million. It was an arrangement. It was an arrangement, I admit, said Mr. Sampson Levi. But your highness broke the arrangement. There was a long silence. Do you mean to say, began the prince with tense calmness, that you are not in a position to let me have that million. I could let your highness have a million in a couple of years' time. The prince made a gesture of annoyance. Mr. Levi, he said, if you do not place the money in my hands tomorrow, you will ruin one of the oldest of reigning families, and incidentally you will alter the map of Europe. You are not keeping faith, and I had relied on you. Pardon me, your highness said little Levi, rising in resentment. It is not I who have not kept faith. I beg to repeat that the money is no longer at my disposal, and to bid your highness good morning. And Mr. Sampson Levi left the audience chamber with an awkward, aggrieved bow. It was a scene characteristic of the end of the nineteenth century, an overfed, commonplace, pursy little man who had been born in a Brixton semi-detached villa and whose highest idea of pleasure was a Sunday up the river in an expensive electric launch, confronting and utterly routing, in a hotel belonging to an American millionaire, the representative of a race of men who had fingered every page of European history for centuries, and who still, in their native castles, were surrounded with every outward circumstance of pomp and power. Aribert, said Prince Eugen, a little later, "'You were right. It is all over. I have only one refuge.' "'You don't mean—' Aribert stopped, dumbfounded. "'Yes, I do,' he said quickly. "'I can manage it so that it will look like an accident.' End of chapter 19 and 20